Hello, everyone. My name is Ryan Griggs, and I'm the host of the Regenesance podcast. And alongside me today is Chaz from Grassway Organics. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So to get started, I guess just wanted to give a brief introduction of everything that you've been doing uh, up in Wisconsin with Grassway Organics. Yeah, you bet. Um, here at Grassway Organics, uh, we milk about 55 A2A2 grass-only Jersey cows. Um, we also have emphasis on pasture-raised uh, poultry, including Thanksgiving turkeys, eggs, and uh, meat chickens. Um, and then for our summer, we do pizza on the farm, which is a local community event. We try to cook mostly or grow most of the ingredients, and then we cook them on wood-fired ovens. Um, and currently, we're right around 690 acres. So That's awesome. So as... Someone for me to where I did not really visit a farm or really just been so disconnected from agriculture up until two years ago. So whenever I was about 28 and the amazing thing with, with switching into that is a lot of the farmers that I've talked with, they absolutely love their local communities and, and providing food for them and uh, just the fulfillment out of that. So I guess before getting into your background, I'm just would be really curious to hear about the wood fire pizza aspect because there's so much that goes on in, in a farm. And again, since most people in America specifically have never ever gone on a farm and even just doing one little thing like this uh, just can really get the snowball rolling for folks. And so I'm just curious to hear what made you want to do something like that and what's the experience been like since doing that? Yeah, you bet. Um, we actually stole the idea from a farm in northern Wisconsin that had been doing it. Um, here in our region, we're very heavily populated, being close to Milwaukee and Madison and Chicago. Uh, but where this farm was located in Thorpe, um, or not outside of Thorpe, in Red Red Granite, Wassa area, um, they were bringing in revenue that we were amazed that someone would actually want to go to a farm and eat pizza from. So this is oh, eight years ago. Uh, we ended up taking my wife and I um, and an employee. We went up and did their uh, one-day course to kind of get a crash idea of what Pizza on the Farm really was. And uh, we worked with it. We really liked it. Um, and we said, we can do this better. And let's go ahead and do it. Um, at the time, we were transitioning from our farmers, our mentors, uh, Wayne and Kay Craig, um, on a dairy farm and uh, being a first generation farmer, um, the, the debt cloud um, becomes greater and greater when you start to embark on an adventure this large that uh, we thought pizza on the farm would, would definitely help with the revenue. So uh, it started out as really trying to make money and now it is bigger community event than we could have ever expected. I'm sure probably on this podcast, you talked a lot about, you know, the average age farmer now is close to 60 in the United States and less than 1% of the population are farmers and people in the cities don't have an option to even go to a farm. So this really community driven event, like, you know, one of our number one Google reviews is it's like, it's an actual farm. So it's kind of funny to see that, you know, people are you know, coming out to farms and enjoying pizza. And it's, it's really a, about the food supporting the community and the community supporting the food. With that, I'm just curious, have there been any folks that this has, I guess, sparked their interest in agriculture at all, just by going to some small event, like a, a pizza on the farm? 
Um, you know, that's a great question. I don't know if I could answer it. Um, you know, I don't know if I can answer that properly. One, one story I really love to tell is that, uh, when my wife and I started, um, doing pizzas, we actually bought a food truck that had a wood fired oven on it. And it was just, I mean, it was just the two of us and we would milk in the morning. We'd milk at night. We would make 20 pizzas. We'd be like, wow, like this is incredible. And now, you know, I have, we have up to 30 employees you know, we do close to 500 pizzas a night. So wow, the change was, um, you know, and it was really amazing to see. And I hate to focus on COVID, but really COVID was the best thing for our business because at the time, previous COVID, people would be like, yeah, my food comes from the grocery store. And then when COVID hit, food insecurity came in, people were starting to panic. Then the question is, where does my food actually come from? And that really boosted us into a new position um, of operation for us to really, really expand and grow to where we are today. No, I can definitely agree with that in terms of it's partially why I, I started Reginestance is I've noticed year by year, more and more people are, I guess, quote unquote, waking up to a, I, again, I have, I have no idea where my food comes from. I go into grocery stores fully expecting everything I need to be stocked again, not knowing where it comes from most grocery stores, all the produce looks the exact same. And so it's been really interesting just to see. I think again this year is going to be really huge for for milk, raw milk specifically, and it just really gets me fired up. Uh, on the topic of change, though, I know you have a really interesting background leading up to Grassway Organics, so I'm just really curious to hear. Um, I know you you mentioned that you're from Santa Cruz, so yeah, if you could just uh, talk a little bit more about that and how you got to where you're at now. Yeah, I really love that we have this in common. Um, you know, I didn't set foot on a farm until I was 19. I'm now 36 and, uh, from 19 years old is when, you know, agriculture really sparked in my mind. Um, I was a hardcore die vegan ALS, like you name it. And this extremist is probably, you can tell by my massive ears and covered in tattoos, <laughs> but being a, an ALS supporter and vegan, you know, I thought, you know, you know, milk came from the grocery store and these guys are horrible and. I was 19 years old watching a PETA video of a dairy farmer beating up a calf that wouldn't take a bottle. And in my mind, I was like, well, milk comes from the grocery store. Why is this farmer beating up a calf? Um, that really sparked me. And I ended up getting a dairy master's degree from Mid-State Technical College, never once setting foot you know, on a farm. And when I chose the program to go to college, um, you know, I was in the front of the class eager to learn because I didn't, I knew literally nothing. Like you can't, I mean, like I was blank slate. And for me, everything they taught was just like, whoa, this is crazy. And when I applied for the school, they had never seen anything like me. And I was like, well, can I get a job? Can you put me up for a place to live? And they're like, oh yeah, we got, we got you covered. So I ended up, uh, milking on a fairly small size conventional farm, uh, a really wonderful family on Marshfield. Uh, we milked about 380 cows. Uh, we milked at 3.30 in the morning and 3.30 at night. And I loved it. I just I just remember the first day I, I stepped foot on a farm. You know, I asked their son. I was like, you know, how can you tell a difference from a bull and a cow? And straight faced, he was like, well, look behind it. If it's got balls, it's a bull. It's a cow. <laughs> you know, when you think about that, I just think about that story now, like how, you know, in, in, in the farming community there's a lot of um, misconceptions about farmers being closed-minded or farmers being you know uneducated or not but really it comes down to is farming that's all they know that's what they do and 
for them to be able to take in this this pierced eared you know 19 year old vegan to allow it to work on their farm really you know, <laughs> it amazes me still to this day that they did it but they loved it and i love being there that's the other thing that you know, a lot of people don't realize is that farm farming is a life choice. It's not a job. You know, everyone's like, wow, you work so hard, but it's like, it's the farm wife, literally the farm life. You can tattoo it for you. So <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> it really is a lifestyle that once you're in it, you don't realize how much you actually work. Um, and that schooling plus my experience on a conventional farm being 19, you know, of course, all the world's answers are in Europe. Um, you know, I was like, no, only organic farms live in Europe that came from the United States. Uh, during my schooling in the summer, when we were off, I ended up uh, landing a job in Norway, the country where we milked um, an average of 14 cows. Um, we had 72,000 acres and only 14 of it was tillable. So it can give you kind of a, a gist of the different scale. Like, yeah, it was a very small scale. Uh, it was a grass-based farm which was really my, my, you know, my goal was to learn grass. Um, regenerative is the big one organic. Um, as much as we preach it now, it, you know, that was really, um, important for me to learn. And during school, you didn't learn any of it. And if you did, it was someone making conventional guy, making fun of organic guys, you know, at the time, uh, which didn't bother me because I didn't know anything. Right. So you're in a clean slate. I don't, you know, if a cow is on concrete his whole life or it's out on grass, I didn't, I didn't know the difference. I didn't know. So my time in, in Norway and in Europe um, really opened my eyes to regenerative practices. And I don't even say regenerative, but alternative to CAFO farming or confined animal feed operations here in the United States where, you know, you milk 2,000 cows, you're still a small dairy. I mean, it's crazy just to think about. Um, but there it was really small scale. So that ended up sparking my interest um, in re regenerative. Um, and during that summer, I worked in Norway. I came home, worked again on the conventional farm, um, still going to school. It was a two-year program. And three days before I was supposed to graduate, I get a call from the, Nor the, Nor or the farm in Norway and said, hey, the farmer broke his collarbone. Would there be any chance you'd want to come back and milk cows? And I said, absolutely. So they called on Friday and Monday morning, I was milking cows in Norway, um, which oh, was cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, I was there for almost nine months. Um, to be honest, I probably would have stayed if they would let me. Uh, but my wife and I um, were now uh, pregnant with our first son. Um, and then Norway wouldn't let us stay. So it was time to come back to Wisconsin and, and embark on the adventure that we now know as Grassway. That, wow. So that's awesome. And there's a lot to unpack there because you bring up so many awesome points. The first one I definitely want to uh, hone in on is you're just talking about the average age of the farmer getting nearly to 60 and how a lot of people do view them as closed-minded and uh, I would say hickish too, to where they're just not very smart. But so I worked on a farm last fall, actually, no, now it's two falls now, now it's 2024 uh, in rural Pennsylvania. And I had never experienced the countryside of America. It was surrounded by Amish. It was, I think about that farm every single day because you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's a lifestyle. Even though I was working every single day and on Saturdays and Sundays, you got to do your, your animal chores and whatnot, just being out in the land and all you just hear is just nature and you're just surrounded by that. It's, it's an inexplicable feeling. And again, that's why I think about it every single day, even though I love where I'm at currently. Um, yeah, there's just something about that. And then also on top of that, um, the farm, yeah, the farmers that I've 
talked with are just so welcoming. Again, for me too, I know you can relate to that. Um, as a former vegan, as someone that never really gone on farms and never done any of that type of work, they welcomed me with open arms. They helped me a lot and showed me the ropes of everything. And they're so passionate about everything they're doing. And that's why for me, it's the greatest decision I've ever made in my life was, was making that switch. With that being said, I, I would love to backtrack a little bit to whenever you were saying you were 19 and you had been a vegan. How long ago, I guess, let's talk about the vegan journey a little bit too, because I talk about it quite a bit on just like my personal, on social medias with Regenaissance and whatnot, but I have not actually had someone on a podcast that was a former vegan. So I'd love to hear uh, when did that first come about and... You were saying you're really in, in, in the thick of all of that. So I'm just curious to hear more about that too. Yeah. Um, if anyone is you know, familiar with the, the vegan movement, um, most people know that there's a huge vegan uh, hard metal slash deathcore slash punk rock um, that's associated with being, being vegan. And I really fell in love with that due to the music. Um, I remember this band called Good Clean Fun, and it was just super positive just pro-vegan and just as vegan as it comes. And I remember listening to that, like, wow, you know, maybe you really can beat the meat, you can change the world, and this is, you know, going to be it. And I got sucked into it, being naive, you know, not knowing much about it. And, you know, especially when you're that age, you uh, become vegan in all the wrong reasons and for all the wrong ways. Um, and I say that because I used to eat veganes and chips and Oreos. Be like, yeah, man, like, I'm vegan. Screw your McDonald's. <laughs> you know, not grasping the full effect of, of what diet meant. And, you know, when you're 19 and, and 20 and 17 or 18, you know, you can be vegan and survive on vegan A's and chips and be totally fine. But now, you know, it being in the 30s, if I already eat vegan A's and chips, I would dwindle away and die because there's literally no nutrients in it. Um, I also really. Um, you know, a, a, I love giving vegans a hard time because being a former vegan, I've heard all the arguments, I've been part of the argument. Um, and really now the movement is catching, you know, a new wave. It's weird. It's weird to hear vegans again. Cause like in the early 2000s, going to beat down shows, everyone was vegan or straight edge, straight edge. And then you never heard about it. Now it's like, it's coming up again. And for agricultural purposes, which is so funny because if you're supporting you know a small scale vegetable farmer who's doing their best job and creating the land and giving back to the land and doing things that's great but if you're eating tomatoes in wisconsin in february and that's all you're eating supporting the large greenhouses in spain that you, the the concept is totally gone away from regenerative agriculture right like and that really kind of stems you know us back to the one percent issue that's my biggest gripe with agriculture is we are not one generation not two generations we're three and four generations removed from farming like you have to understand like my parents didn't farm my grandparents didn't farm and we're so far away from it that we can assume that veganism is good for the land which is actually completely not true at all um you know regenerative practices are um and that's it's weird to me because it's, it's, I always get, you know, I get, I always get internally um, kind of mixed up when I talk about it this. Cause if I hear a kid who is, let's say right out of high school, he's eating McDonald's and Taco Bell every single day, not caring about anything. But then you hear a vegan kid who's really passionate about, let's just say animal welfare, which is probably the only somewhat thing you can win on. Like, I don't want to support anything that dies. Like, okay, granted, you know, the practices of farming and all. So they don't understand that. So let's just get away from that. 
you know, I'm almost like, man, if you're vegan, like maybe that is better. You know, like I, I is being vegan better than milking, you know, 75,000 cows that Walmart has stuck on, you know, on a concrete lot. I, I don't know. I'm, I am, I am, as you are probably too kind of, you know, a little bit lenient towards vegans because I think it's a great step in the right direction to start opening your mind to agriculture, you know, because even if the vegan, you know, most people who don't, don't even think about it, let's just say go through the norm. Vegans at least have gone through the PETA videos and seen like, you know, like I hate picking on that dairy, um, you know, in Indiana, I can't remember, they do the, the fair Oaks farm, you know, they are got caught with animal cruelty, you know, employees are growing, you know, plants that shouldn't be grown it's a whole chaos form and then on top of it the abuse to animals is real it is a real thing like we can't argue that it is but there's practices out there that you can support and get away from that and that is what i feel veganism is a good step to they can at least get them in the you know get the ball rolling for them and i guess the ultimate vegan argument when i was a hardcore die vegan everybody you know it's like <laughs> i guess i don't know if we can bring this up toys at the south but you know it's like uh if you pleasure your wife in a certain way guess what buddy you're not vegan so it was always like oh you know they're there you know? <laughs> <laughs> that always yeah, like uh, you know it is so i guess my my take on veganism is i'm, I'm a little bit more lenient towards them because in reality they kind of actually know a little bit more about agriculture than the normal people would and I hate to say that, but it's true. But the one thing about veganism that I was always kind of, you know, pulled at my heartstrings is they're passionate people. Man. Like when I was vegan, it was like vegan life forever. Yeah. Like there was no like, oh, I don't know, maybe I'll. It's like no, you make that choice to get that dietary restriction. Like it's a serious choice, man. And if you actually follow it or do something, you know, and and try to to do it properly man it's intense and expensive and <laughs> it's a lot so um very very often will you meet a good vegan to be honest with you because usually it's like me oreos and veganese so i i was one for two and a half years and i had a total of zero friends that were in that space just because i didn't really relate to to them at all with how intense they were and a bunch of other reasons too but i'll just leave it at that but what i do find interesting um because I do agree they're on the right track, but they're like halfway there. Because for me, I actually have not watched any of the documentaries. I didn't watch many YouTube videos outside of some earthling ed. And that's about it. I just felt that I never did the deep dive into protein and soy. And now, obviously, now learning more about agriculture and how that's a detriment to that. I just felt morally and ethically convicted to, to make that leap. Because CAFOs are really brutal i've seen videos of the horrendous abuse and you could just hear just turning on the sounds you can hear it's horrific and i'm still 100 percent against a lot of that but like you said once i switched back and then i heard about regenerative agriculture and then i visited these farms and then i worked on one it's nine day difference to where it's it is the way forward to me. And that's, again, why I have this podcast, why I have Regenaissance is to reconnect us back to that. Uh -huh. um, I'm trying to, I, there was one question I had too. Crap. You had a really great point and I, hold on. I got it. This part will be edited in the, the in the time. I'm trying to remember. No, I was going to say I eat pussy, but I was like, I don't know. I should. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> not every, me, myself, and Irene. 
<laughs> Have you ever seen that movie? Yeah. With, yeah, I remember when he's like, man, he's like, is your old lady happy? He's like, what do you mean? He's like, because your police work is as good as your fucking, you couldn't hit the clit on a 10 pound pussy. Oh, that is so funny. Holy shit. <laughs> um, crap. Okay, hold on. Before I move on, because there was one really great point you had on veganism that I'm trying to recollect now. Uh, I'll just, if I remember, I guess I'll try to bring sure. it back. I guess just to continue on with that. So, um, yeah, it was around 19 and you were also starting to read about, I guess, can you talk about, there was, the, you mentioned at 19 that you took some type of, was it a dairy program or class? Uh-huh. Degree. Degree. Yeah. If you I'm can talk. Educated. So how did you find that? And I guess at 19, what were you searching for and to where you you stumbled upon that? And then, yeah, I'm just curious to hear that. Yeah. Wonderful question. Um, you know, um, it's, if you're, a, you know, just your regular everyday person, if you tried to find a farmer, you wouldn't be able to do it. Like it's impossible. Um, and not because we're, we don't want to talk to people. It's just because we're hard to find because it's so rare. Um, and it being 19, you know, I, you know, as a society forces you to go to college, like, oh, you, you don't go to college. You're going to be nothing. You know, and I, I don't know, maybe with the newer generations, that's kind of going out the window, but in my generation, you know, you kind of feel like a bastard child if you don't go to school. Yeah. So, uh, I took some time off to travel you know, after high school and I was like, all right, it's time to go back to college. And I found the mid-state technical college program, which would basically be like a farm operations or dairy master's degree. Um, and it was 2,200 bucks a year, um, super cheap. I could afford it myself. And it gave you the credentials to eventually be able to take an FSA loan. So I didn't even know that at the time. I just wanted to know how the hell, when was, what happens with milk cows, what happens with pigs on a scale what happened with chickens i didn't know anything so for me i just personally fell in love with cows um you know at this point i don't know if it's a blessing or a curse because it's there every day you know except on we don't milk on sundays and we don't milk on christmas morning you know i, I love saying that like, oh really like no every single day it doesn't happen <laughs> um and that technical degree but really, even to this day, you know, I will still re refer back to it because I learned everything I didn't want to do, right? Like it was a it was a school for KFOs or it was a school for kids who grew up on farms who already knew everything, but they had to have the school because FSA wants them to see that they can, you know, have some sort of degree when, before they take over the farm, you know? And I would love to go back to the school now, you know, being in the position I am going through that program and now, you know, running it you know, on all 700 acre farm, I'd love to go back and talk to those kids to see that there, there are other options out there. I think it's hard, um, especially nowadays with, you know, the next transition to younger generations that I, I honestly believe that, you know, you'll hear this a lot in the farm world. Well, that's what grandpa did. Well, it may be at work for grandpa, but it is not working for us. It's not working for the next generation. It's not working for the planet and it's not working for financially stable. Um, and that's a really big thing that I think I feel is a curse to a lot of kids that are like, wow, man, I just got gifted this, you know, $10 million farm. And now I'm going to milk, you know, 110 cows conventionally and lose that in 10 years. Cause I losing money, you know, I feel that is a societal push, which I, I hope the next generation will get away from. Um, you know, unless you go like, well, it's what my great, great grandfather did. And then it's like, okay, you know, we're going back to some of the basics of agriculture, but 
the focus really on that school was, you know, just, it was just the foundation, you know, where I really ended up starting to learn and where most people, you know, on your podcast are like, man, I just really, I really want to learn about farming. It was like, well, go to a farm because you're going to learn so much in the day-to-day grind that you, you won't even know that you learned it. And then two years down the line, you're like, oh, I remember when this happened, I, should, I can implement this, you know? Um, and that I feel is hard for people as well because you know, there's not a lot of jobs for agriculture. There's not a lot of jobs in milking cows because we've become so huge now, you know, or nobody, you know, I, I hate using that. Oh, nobody wants to work nowadays. Like, I don't think that's true. I just don't think anybody wants to work full time for no money for a corporation that doesn't give us health insurance, that doesn't give us any benefits. You know, I think that, you know, hopefully that mindset will change where companies are going to start, you know, valuing employees more than you know bottom line or stock you know shareholders which would be great which pushes us into the you know the conversation of the next generation of farmers and it, it's it was really cool during this transition the last you know 10 plus years to see that it is the vegans it is like all the city kids that were tired of working for corporations that are now starting small vegetable farms these these oddball i love to say c students that are now taking the risk and getting to a point of changing which is it is great i mean it's great it really is great and it and for most generational farmers they don't like change change is not good we don't want i don't want anything to do with it and that's you know hard for them to change due to bottom line but also because nobody else is doing it and if you grew up on a farm the last thing you want to be is afraid doing something new yeah especially because then the longer the older you get the, the more difficult it is to even think about making it a change because that requires a lot. I mean, especially in the context of agriculture, that's what a lot of folks don't understand is this regenerative specifically is really picked up a lot of steam, especially on social media. And I am a full believer in it, but a lot of people have to understand that for conventional farmers, that's like you were saying, fourth, fifth plus generations, that's all they're taught and raised. And then to be told you need to make all these changes after having an crazy amount of money invested into that from that's passed down to you. Yeah. It's, it requires like a lot of change, not just physically, but mentally. Um, so yeah, that's why I'm glad that there's a lot of folks like you out here doing this, but then also just sharing it online because it's so crucial. Whenever you were working on, uh, the, the dairy masters and were you working directly on like major CAFO dairy operations? I, uh, at the time I was like, oh man, you guys are so huge and they're milking, you know, 380 cows. I was like, you guys are just massive KFO, uh, which technically by compared to animal units, they are not a KFO. But for me, I was like, wow, this is so many. And then during the schooling, uh, we actually visited a farm that was milking 9,800 cows a day and just the barn was 27 acres. You couldn't even see from one end to the other and you can't. You can't, and nobody can fathom it. I can tell you, we can talk about it on a podcast, but until your boots are in that barn, you cannot fathom the size they are. And the largest dairy in the world, I don't even know what, they're probably at 100,000 a day now. It's insane to think about how um, corporations have come in and created this living creature, this nurturing animal into a commodity. Like You are just a number. You're going to be born on concrete and you will die on concrete because the bottom line matters. Um, which is unusual because especially in dairy, I, I like to focus mainly on dairy because that's where my passion lies. 
Um, but it's so easy to pick on dairy because it's the only industry where you overproduce a product and then you complain about not making money because you overproduce too much and your solution is to then produce more. <laughs> it's like, what, what is going on here? It's like if you owned a t-shirt company and you said, I'm not selling any t-shirts, so I'm going to print more t-shirts. You know, it's like... And, and I, you know, the argument about quotas, you know, this was a huge thing back in school is like giving farmers quota, you overproduce, you're going to get fined or it's going to get dumped. We're not going to pay you for it. You know, it's already implemented in Canada has been for a long time, but that's very uncapitalistic of you, you know, to think about getting the quotes, like, how are we going to make it if we don't get bigger? And so dairy is such a weird business because it's the only one that functions on loss. Like we're never making a profit and it's always because we produce too much or it's always because, you know, these videos come out and people are like, I don't want this dairy. I don't want to support AFO or I can't, I can't consume A1 milk and 90% of dairy cows produce A1 beta casein uh, protein mutations. So it, it's such a, you know, it's like dry, it's like riding a bicycle and then taking a stick, stamming it in your, in your spokes and flipping over and being like, why would you do that? And so I like to pick on dairy because it's such, uh, it's such an easy change. You know, the only light at the tunnel for dairy right now is direct to consumer, raw, and, you know, community-based, you know. And I like to refer, like, our business to, you know, I'm not saying I do or don't sell raw milk uh, because in the state of Wisconsin, it is legal to sell raw milk, but they don't really tell you how to do that. So we've been in and out of the court systems for 10 years fighting that, Um but it's so weird that there is such a success story with raw milk farmers that the, the dairy state of all wouldn't support it. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. so unusual. And it always comes back to the food safety argument. I love this food safety you know, argument. I don't know if, if you've talked to Mark McAfee yet, but he should be mm. on your list too. Uh, but he's a big raw milk farmer out in California. And you want to talk about food safety for the customers that I supply to like this, I could call them and say, Hey, we had a recall, something wrong. You want to talk about food safety. It is the number one food safety, knowing who your customers are. And in most cases, what I always refer to when I talk to like, you know, state agencies or DATCAP in our state, is called Department of, Agri Department of Agriculture, Trade and Consumer Protection is that. If we think about it in, I don't think it was the late 90s, early 2000s, there was like a hundred breweries. There was nothing left. And then all of a sudden it took that one little microbrew to spark. Now you can't go into a small town without a microbrewery. It's insane. And that's my real hope for a vision for raw milk is that would be the same for every small town. That one farmer milking 50, 60 cows could supply his community with milk. It doesn't get on the market. It doesn't get put into commodity. It doesn't get shipped or mixed in with milk from freaking India. Like we start having that local community focus on dairy again. And there would be hundreds of thousands of farms that would thrive being able to have no middleman and supply their community with the nutrients it needs. So this is a great topic. This is one of my favorite topics. I mean, I'm wearing a Make Milk Rawgan hat. I'm wearing my sweatshirt that sure. on the back of it is Tagline Raw's Law. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to take it back a little bit before going into the actual details of bringing up the good points of food safety and direct-to-consumer. I'm going to put that aside and, and bring bring that back. Whenever you visited the farm that had the 9,800 dairy cattle within that barn, do you remember what the, the smells and the sounds were like whenever you w walked into that? I'm just curious. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and it, CAFO <clears throat> or confined animal feed operations definitely have a different smell than cows that are eating fresh grass, that are outside exercising, that are in the sunlight, that are running around like they're supposed to be. You know, it, it always smells like a pathogen or something sick. It always has this sort of like, man, like it just something is off. And there's like, or, you know, this, maybe it's like stress, you know, like sometimes people's BO will change when they get stressed. You're like, oh, why do you smell? Because that happens. And it, KFOs always have that smell, that distinct sour smell or, you know, sick smell. And that's what's interesting too, because with the talk of pasteurization yeah. versus for all, um, this example kind of makes sense that pasteurization might be a thing because the conditions are just so horrid that they're literally making their cows sick already before even producing any milk. And that's why, I don't know, this whole topic is just really interesting because up until two years ago, I always had thought that milk should be pasteurized, that raw milk should be illegal, that we should never drink it. I I drank the quote-unquote Kool-Aid for all, this whole entire topic until I started actually learning about the history of it and actually talking to dairy farmers and then actually drinking raw milk, realizing how wrong I was and how much we've been lied to for so long. And so I'm curious with you, you were talking about the food safety. I just would love to talk on this topic specifically. How do you ensure, because you say you have direct contacts and relationships with your customers. How do you go about the food safety of your specific dairy? And yeah, I guess whenever you're, before you even milked your first cow, I'm assuming there's just a lot of things that you had to set in stone on your farm to ensure the the quality and care of your cows and then the the uh, sanita sanitation and everything had to be good to go before you started actually milking the cows so if you could just lay out what that was like too for the listeners yeah absolutely um i previously before getting into dairy um i was actually working at a brewery um standing on concrete 12 hours a day six days a week and was becoming unhealthy and really knew that my passion was led to farming. Um, and I actually found an ad in the organic broadcaster that literally said retiring farmers looking to get out to sell their business to young couple. Um, and at that point, um, two of our sons were born and we were like, all right, let's just check it out. It's worth a drive. It's only a couple hours from here. Um, in which I will always, I call them farm fairies. Uh, my mentors, um, you know, they've been through everything. So if they're, if it's two 30 in the morning, and I have a problem with a cow. I would instantly call Wayne or Kay because I know they've been through it in some case. Um, and um, when we took over for Wayne and Kay Grassway um, at our old location, um, where they were located was an extremely, extremely conservative area. Um, and us not being a conventional conservative family, we were really scared. Like, man, these people are going to judge us. And this is it, you know, like, and I look like this. And literally our mentors, at least mine, was an, an old me with no body modification. It was crazy how well I worked um, and got to learn from him, Wayne, which was one of my, you know, my who I credit a lot to. Um, and he, they were milking cows, were milking about 150 at the time, uh, grass only, which was extremely rare at the time. Uh, but they were seasonal, so they, they you know, they only capped um, in March, uh, milking 150. And at the, that point, they had been through several lawsuits selling raw milk. They had been selling raw milk for, for multiple years. Um, and they were just burnt. They were done. They were tired. They were tired of the fight, tired of waking up every day. They were tired of things dying and 
you know, tired of finances not being great. Um, that when we stepped in, it was like a new, you know, breath of fresh air for them. They were really like, okay, this can work. We can do this. And me, you know, being, a, you know, young, I'm like, I have the fight in me. I'm ready. Like, let's dog this out. Like, there's no problem. Uh, but when we did take over, um, you know, we, we took the first time farm loan, which if anyone is listening to your podcast and want to get into farming, FSA will be your best friend. No way to look around it. They do some really great programs. Uh, but we took out the max FSA loan to basically buy the equipment, the animals, and the business. Um, and at the time, the business had an on-farm store. Um, they were selling goods, you know, local goods, their chicken, their beef, and, of course, their milk. Um, and we were looking at the numbers like, wow, this is actually viable. Like, this is actually working for them. This is not, you know. Granted, they were debt-free. They worked extremely hard to become debt-free. Uh, you know, they bought their land in the 1980s when it was, you know, couple hundred you know 900 bucks an acre which now you can't touch anything under twelve thousand. so the times were different i understand but they were really had a lifestyle that we thought could support what we wanted to do so uh raw milk really came on the scale for me when we took over because i was like what are you talking about these customers are coming from where like they're driving in the snow they're sober you know and so i started digging into it and read uh, the devil is in uh the milk which is a great book about the a1 a1 beta protein mutation um and at that point when we took over we're like screw it we're gonna sell all cows that are a1 a2 and we're just gonna milk what we have um for a2 a2 plus uh the quality that they had already established was extremely high we were getting paid for certified organic prices plus we were getting paid for quality and getting paid for being grass only so their foundation for me was phenomenal in the food safety realm because they were they were really really great dairy farmers um, but at that time in 2016, we, they sold about a hundred of the cows, which left us was about 35 left. Now we're completely A2A2 grass only. We're like, yeah, you know, 35 cows will take the revenue that we make from pizza and that will, you know, show FSA that it will be fine because we're not going to be milking 135 cows. Um, it'll work out really great. Um, <laughs> which, uh, I mean, it did kind of, um, but in 2018 at the new Holstein location, um, we were approached by a film crew from Netflix who ended up putting out a documentary called Rotten. Um, Rotten had really great intentions, uh, but completely screwed the raw milk movement. Uh, they lied and they cheated and they did exactly what they weren't supposed to do. Um, and we don't really, uh, the Netflix thing that, not that it was bad for us, uh, but it, it made us look great, but it looked, uh, our really good friends, Mark McAfee in California, the raw farm look bad. They like pin the two of us against each other. It was it was just a nightmare. Um, but um, on that episode, um, in the state of Wisconsin at the time, there's only three ways to sell raw milk legally. One is with incidental sales. One is to your employees, or the third one's called bona fide ownership. So at the time, it was very hush hush. Don't tell anybody we're selling raw milk. We can't be telling raw milk. I remember when the milkman would come, you'd have to have the spout off the bottom of the tank, like because if you get reported. You lose your grade A license. If you lose your grade A license, you lose your contract. Um, if anyone's familiar with Organic Valley, they're anti-raw milk as it comes. They're one of the biggest donators towards the anti-raw milk movement um, because they just don't want, you know, competition basically is what it comes down to. Uh, but at the time we were milking and shipping milk to Westby Organics um, and Westby is a, is a great company. Um, it's same with, they do a lot of Kelowna. They do a lot of contracting for regenerative products, which we really like. Um, but when that um, documentary came out, 
you know, we basically never admitted that we were selling raw milk, but at the end of it, you kind of know what we do. And they, DATCAP, the Department of Agriculture, Trade and Consumer Protection, threatened us with a cease and desist. And because the state of Wisconsin doesn't have really set laws of how to sell raw milk, they didn't have anything against us. Like They couldn't shut us down for any reason. So our attorneys said, no, we're not going to sign this. You have no grounds. And instead of going after us, they went after Westby. Surprise, surprise, right? They want to cut the jugular. So they did. Um, Westby contacted us and said, sorry, dude, you're, you're too much of a hot topic. We're done. Like, we can't pick up from Nilfany anymore. We're sorry, but, you know, good luck. And so that March in 2019, uh, we ended up losing our grade A license, which was a blessing in disguise because it really pushed us into becoming rogue farmers. Like, screw it. If you're not going to pick up my milk, then I'm going to make, um, you know, I'm going to make a community that I'm willing to provide for that's going to support us. And during the time, believe me, it was, it was, you know, you almost want to tear up how hard it was for us to try to get through that financially because they were cutting about $6,000 a month from us. And they knew exactly what they were doing. They, you know, they wanted us to go out of business. And in, in our little raw milk world, we say, if they can't take you out the front door, they'll take you out the back door which is exactly what they did, but we had resilience. Um, <laughs> we did this pizza on the farm thing, which was, you know, unheard of. And that started picking up storm, you know, and we were just like, wow, like, okay. And now it's working, you know, and a lot of, you know, I always refer to it like, you know, like if you really want to get into farming, you should, you should be able to jump out of an airplane without a parachute. It's, it's wild, man. And the ride is completely wild. Um, but it was working. Our on-farm store was built. We're really, our star was going great. Um, we also, because of losing our milk license, we decided to go virtual. So we delivered to 15 places throughout the state. Um, and that was really geared us towards like selling more beef and selling more chicken and really kind of geared us towards like, okay, like I can drive to Milwaukee and, you know, make money. I can drive to Appleton and make money. It was crazy to kind of think about this is pre-COVID. So nobody was doing it at the time. Um, and then, you know, we survived through pizza on the farm did um 2019 and then of course COVID hit and we were sold out instantly i can't i can't even tell you three days later we had no pro we had years of product on the shelves it was sold we were it's gone because everyone panicked and that really boomed our online business you know we were just like wow like people you know, will go so we have the same online business just as a um, csa so you become a member um, in our legal stance, which we can get into a little bit more in depth, um, we're bona fide ownership. So you have to become an owner of the farm, which is just like a co-op. And that allows you access to any raw product that we make, um, which was interesting. But that just went out of control when COVID hit. We just were like, people, like we said earlier in the podcast, like, oh, where does my food come from? You're like, yeah, well, <laughs> it was us. Uh, which put us in, uh, you know, it's kind of a tougher buying because now we're, we don't, we can't produce enough. Whereas before we're dumping milk and we're kind of going in. Um, and another thing to backtrack during that rotten episode, um, they pinned us against, they're now called, it was, it was called Organic Pastures. Now it's called the Raw Farm, Mark McAfee. Mark McAfee is the champion, the, the, the boss when it comes to raw milk. And I reached out to him because it made us look like we were enemies. I didn't know him at the time. Like, I didn't even know he was going to be on there. I reached out to their company. Within 15 minutes, Mark called me back personally and was like, hey, man, like, you know, it's bullshit. I can't believe they did this. They made him. It was just, it was everything they said was a lie. It was just wild. So we had a really good relationship and a talk. And he said, hey, listen, man. He's like, I run a program called Rami, which is um, the, the Raw Milk Institute puts together basically a food safety program that you apply for completely free. Uh, but you, you will do whatever, like what any company will do, which is a ramp 
a risk and management plan. They'll do an SSOP. They'll do a critical point control. And they basically, it's a, you sign up for it to become certified, you know, like, like you would anywhere. And it took me, it was the longest application I had tried for. It took me about nine months to become Rami certified. Uh, but after this, you know, rotten thing, we became Rami certified and it put me into food safety mode. Like it is incredible what Mark has, the program that they put out, because you think down to how many times are you changing your gasket? You know, how many times are you washing your hands? Where are your boots from outside the farm to into the milk house? Like you, you can't, you know, cause most of the time I'm just milking cows. Like that's all I want to do. Now that really stemmed me to be like, all right, cool. Like now this is about food safety. Like this is a great part of raw milk that is allowed from us. And if you become Rami certified, it's basically um, federally approved. So as a raw milk farm in the state of Wisconsin, I was the first person ever to get product liability insurance for raw milk in a state that can't clearly tell you how to sell raw milk, like revolutionary, right? Yeah. Changing game, like state of Wisconsin, I am a nightmare for them because we we hang out all the time. Right now I got a bill in office, DACAP hears from y'all. I love being the guy that's in their face because it's like, all right, you, well, you, they know what you're doing is wrong. Let's have a conversation about it and what can we do to, to, to push this movement further. And it's so funny to me because like every year, we have, in the Midwest, we have these quick trips. Somebody dies from sushi from 7-Eleven or freaking spinach or cantaloupe or something stupid, but nothing ever comes up with raw milk. And it's like their food safety argument is such garbage at this point. Because it's like, no, man, this is a local community. I know every single customer that's coming down the line. If something were to go wrong, I know exactly how to contact everybody. This is the perfect food safety. And with the Rami certification, uh, we have an on-farm lab. So we actually test our milk every single day, twice a day, because currently we're milking twice. And we test for coliforms, which is basically how dirty is your milk. And we test for rapid aerobic coliforms, um, which is basically like how healthy are your cows. So pasteurized grade A milk that you find in the store will run anywhere between 20 and 25 coliform counts. We average under one. Same with rapid aerobic, pasteurized grade A milk that it's been through the nuking process will be anywhere between 20 and 30,000. Our rapid aerobic averages 900. So my food safety is I focus on milk for human consumption, not for pasteurization, not in the same game at all. That's what has been interesting is, as I'm learning about too is um, there's two different paths specifically for that one that's just the pre-pasteurization just versus you it's directly raw for human consumption and he, this is also why I've, I've been so thrilled and looking forward to this conversation is hearing you talk about it's so easy to tell just how much you truly care about the, the food safety and how passionate you are about all of this versus a cafe that has 10,000 cattle within a small barn to where I can only imagine again the smells and just the, the living conditions and how probably awful it is for the workers themselves too that actually be working in those conditions. Um, because then with, I'm just making an assumption here, but I have a feeling that it's partially true for a lot of people that, that are working in that to where, you know, it's just going to be pasteurized in, in the long run. So you don't really care as much as what you're doing to where you're testing twice a day and, and you're looking for all kinds of different things. It's just really fascinating just to hear the differences and how much, effort and, and care and love you're putting into to ensure that we're not the milk that you're selling is good for us because again this is what's so f funny to me it's why would farms sell raw milk 
that is going to make you sick? Why would they put everything that they work for, all the risks they take, just for that? That's what makes me laugh every single time I think of that because farmers don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, But you brought up a good point. Oh, go ahead. I'll let you go, Chaz. A lot of it it comes down to, which is, you know, about the raw milk is also – where, where my passion really lies besides food safety is the treatment of animals. So you have to understand that 90% of dairy animals or dairy cows in the United States have no access to fresh grass. We're talking about the, everyone, it's even, I call it greenwashing, but like here we have like Kemp's and we have these big Walmart companies. Every single ad that they have on with dairy is a cow on pasture. Any person you talk to was like, oh, yeah, I saw, you know, this advertising of the cow on pasture. None of those cows never once in their entire life ever see fresh grass, which is mind blowing to me because a cow is a seed spreader. She is a fertilizer. She is a grass mower. She is your perfect tool. And once KFO farming really became prominent, grazing wasn't that that's a joke. No, no, you shouldn't graze. You can get 150 pounds on a cow shooting RBGH getting a TMR mixture of corn and soy and you can get 150 pounds a day from her. Like, why would you be on grass? And that is like a huge thing. So anyone who is feeding a TMR mixture or, you know, have 8,000 cows on a barn, like if that program is working for them and they can make money doing it, which I know they can't, then, okay, we're not, we're not here to be like, those guys need to sell raw milk. Those guys would never pass tests, as you can tell, because none of employees care. But you also would never tap past a healthy quality animal when she's on concrete, she's getting TMR, she never sees the sun, she doesn't get any exercise. Like your quality of milk is so poor that you don't want to sell it raw. Like there's no way those KFOs are even consider playing in the same game as we are. You know, even with us and our animals, I have 290 acres just in fencing. Like it takes me an hour to get cows home. It's it's a completely different night and day. And, I used to be, especially in my vegan days, hard ALF days, like, you know what, fuck those farmers. They should know better. They, what are they doing? And honestly, being in the game for so long is they were driven based on a system that was built by the USDA. Like they wanted that. They wanted bigger farms. They want, they want to have, you know, one farm producing the same amount of milk as a thousand farms because it's easier to control. It's easier to know what's going on. It's easier to know how the land's being used. And then you get into agribusinesses where they're like, oh, those are the chemical companies that are running those farms. Those are John Deere that are supporting those farms. And I get that, but that is never going to cross pollinate with raw milk that's good for you. And that raw milk that's really good for you is 100% pasture-based. Like, you have, you will not get the quality you're looking for unless you're grazing. And that's crazy, because grazing is such a wonderful art, and it's dying. It's dying so badly right now, and I was lucky enough to learn from one of the best. Because he was, a, like, my my mentor, Wayne, was a soil guru. He actually didn't really like milking cows. He just saw the benefit of how the soil regenerative health was so important with cows. And I was like, whoa. So instead of him going into it, like, oh, I really care about animals, like, He's like, I care about the soil. How do we make the soil the best? And his byproduct was safe raw milk. It's crazy mm-hmm. to think about. He, I don't even yeah. know if he thought about it. It was just like, well, that's just a byproduct. I was like, whoa. So you're learning from soil gurus that really want to take care of the land, that want to put more into it than it was. And here you have a product that you can support and nurture your community. It's crazy. And on top of it, you know, yes, we don't produce. The average dairy cow in the United States produces anywhere between 100 and 150 pounds a day. On a grass-based system with jerseys, I average about 35 pounds. 
So I produce quality, not quantity. So a lot of great stuff there. And on the topic of the USDA created that, I mean, it, it always goes back to the infamous saying from Earl Butts, go big or get out. And uh, yeah, that's just, I remember reading an article actually about Wisconsin dairy. Um, the Department of Agriculture had essentially said something similar to that a couple of years back for dairy farmers. And that was just, I, I forgot exactly what he said, but it just reminded me exactly like that. And then also you're talking about just yields because with agriculture now, it's just all about max maximum yields with your crops and then with dairy. And again, when I was looking into the history of, of milk and, and raw milk, learning about swill, swill distilleries and how during the industrial boom and as major cities were propping up in America and specifically in New York City, I'd be reading how they would have all these distilleries prop up and then they would place a couple cows right next to the distillery and they just feed them all kinds of grains because that just increased their yields like crazy. But then you look into the details of how awful the milk was and that's why they brought in pasteurization. And on top of that, you can look at the direct correlation with the health of the of the youth in these cities drinking this god awful swill milk. And again, it's going back to now the pasteurization from CAFOs and how there's so many health issues that happen from drinking pasteurized dairy. We hear all kinds of issues like lactose intolerance, um, asthma, skin issues, gut issues. And then you talk to the same folks that stopped having stopped consuming pasteurized dairy and transitioned to raw dairy. All of a sudden, those ailments went away for most people. This is also why I wanted to bring this up, too. It doesn't it, again with health and there's not black and white. We view black and white for everything. There's nuance and specifically with dairy too, because you've mentioned A1 and A2. So I'd love to get into that of your learnings from that and can help educate on the different types of dairy and why, even though you might switch to the raw milk, there's folks that still can't have cow milk, but then they'll have say sheep or goat and able to digest that better. So I'm hoping to yeah dive into that a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. First and foremost, I will probably butcher most of what I say. I'll keep, well, I won't butcher it. I will keep it down to simple, but the book is called The Devil is in the Milk. And that explains in depth what's going on with genetic mutations that are found predominantly in Holstein cows. Holstein cows are the number one producers of milk. Um, they're the youngest dairy breed in the United States, actually, the you know, on the planet. And they were basically, you know, cross bred to become. Uh, an animal that can produce an unnatural amount of milk. It's just crazy. Like some Holstein cows I've seen stood six foot five. You're like, what is going on? You know, and I, I have a, uh, I like to pick on John Lucy a lot. John Lucy is um, the FDA's watchdog for, he's, he is anti-raw milk, as, as raw milk as it comes. Mark McAfee and I have sat down with him multiple times. I've talked to him multiple times, you know, about exactly the benefits you're talking about. And of course, you know, he will argue you every single day about it, which is, is still funny to this. But his exact words were, we created Olympians, right? And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, if you think of Olympian, Olympian will have the perfect diet. They'll have juice, let's just say juice or gear, whatever, to become biggest producing, to have all this stuff. And then all of a sudden they're lifting beyond what's, you know, imaginable for a human. Well, same with a cow. You get a cow who genetically was selected to breed to have just production you start to run into issues of other things. Like let's talk about mother nurturing. Can a Holstein cow even raise a mom, a baby if it tried? 
You know, I I wouldn't even know. I'd be surprised to see if Holsteins even could. I hate picking on Holsteins because I know there's a lot of farmers that do a great job milking Holsteins, but I personally, um, I personally have a gripe because of this genetic mutation, which is called the A1A1 beta protein mutation. So I always say, it'll, you know, you, you hit it kind of on the head. It says, you know, I'm lactose intolerant, but I can drink goat's milk. They're like, well, you're not actually lactose intolerant. You're A1 intolerant. And you probably never even had the option to have A2 cow's milk because there's so few rare people doing it. And uh, with the breed of Holsteins, you know, you have to understand 90% of milk is produced by Holsteins. The, the idea of you having A2 milk, unless you specifically buy A2 milk, is impossible. You're not going to find it. Um, so unless you're the A2 company, which, of course, patented it, which is crazy. But uh, anyway, so the A1, A1 beta protein mutation is linked to a lot of diseases. It will go a lot into, you know, the devils in the milk if you're really interested in reading that book. Um, it goes into a lot of just problems genetically with, with A1, A1 cows, which then leads to problems with humans. It makes sense, you know, why it would. But it's also a hard argument in our dairy industry because there's a company that's literally called the A2 company that takes A2 cows, puts them in a CAFO, and says, pasteurizes, all my milk is better for you. It's like, oh, shit. Like, we're trying to get the better steps here, and now the A2 company comes in. It's like, you defeated the poor purpose of the A2 genetics. So I personally am not, you know, I don't, use a1 a1 genetics um i know there's other raw milk farmers out there that do and maybe they have the same benefits um that would happen with gut health because raw the raw product is hands down the best thing for you um so getting into the mutation is that important that's up to the consumer or to the farmer himself um, i know there's probably a lot of great grass-based dairies that have some a1 genetics in there that are having the same results as us i'm sure there is um, but personally, after the readings and the findings, I was like, no more for me and no more. And, um, also in, you know, a lot of people aren't too familiar with breed, but with Jersey cows, specifically mine, they hold the highest amount of A2 genetics. Like if my cow, if I'm really mad and I can't purr, she's too big. So my cows are a lot smaller. They look more like grass puppies. They're half the size of Holsteins. They're much easier to deal with because of the size, which would be something that's more towards what natural is. You know, a six foot tall, 2,400 pound Holstein cow is, you can't, there's nothing you can do with that cow. She's going to do what she wants. So I really like jerseys, um, especially because of the A1, A2 genetics. But, um, you know, it's also, I love saying this on farm tours. I'm like, all cows have horns unless they're naturally pulled like i didn't know that you know being a vegan i was like holy crap cows have horns you know like this is crazy you know so all our cows have horns and still to this day we'll have peas on the farm and people are like oh look at all those bulls <laughs> <laughs> it's not we're that far disconnected that like when i'm on when i'm on farm tours if people just know milk comes from a cow like, all right dude we can relate homie like let's talk you know, because we do deal with people like, oh, no, I don't know, it comes from the grocery store or just right over them. So when you get into these really like in-depth, nitty gritty genetic choices, how you choose, like what is it is? I'm I'm just happy if someone knows what we're because we're that far removed from it. And the real key to regenerative practices, which what we're hoping the USDA is starting to lead to is a grass based system. A hundred percent. There's no, there's no arguing. Nobody can argue. It's always a hundred percent a grass based system, but it, because I'm a hundred percent grass based 
instead of getting 150 pounds for my cow, I get 35 pounds. Like it, it, it is what it is. But if you could consider on the long-term haul for the health of the planet, for the health of our communities, there could be thousands of me in the state of Wisconsin supplying their own communities. And there, everyone would thrive as a small farm if it was geared to that, you know, way, which comes back to the USDA. USDA that, nope, nope, we don't want that. We want bigger, easier to control. You know, we want bigger, 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 which you know, it's funny that, you know, we talk about this because when I got into the system, you know, we were a, a square peg trying to go into a round hole. The USDA was like, oh, I can't figure out how you're not going to milk 5,000 cows. You know, it was never our goal. And now, you know, we'll get stuff from NRCS or we'll get our National Conservation Reserve Systems, which pay farmers to do grass-based systems based on ecology soil erosion like there's this is the you know the push now they're like oh there's funding for fencing and there's funding for water lines you're like all right like you're only 25 years behind but you know like hopefully you know that push towards small regenerative farming will come of course it always comes in the government but it takes forever to get there so uh, that's just also just on the topic of just the lactose intolerance i saw this last week when i went to the grocery store with butter that said it was lactose free. And I, I looked on the labeling and it was pasteurized butter. Step two was they added the enzyme lactase in that. And then I just wanted to just throw it in the trash because what's in raw milk, lactase. And so that's just how we're at now to where I, I made a meme for Regenesance to where you take out all the enzymes and then you bring it back in after pasteurization and create just your own little new market and more money for you. And it's just really funny uh but transitioning to how you actually take care of the animals because i know that's a huge difference compared to you've mentioned it multiple times of just the confinement feedlots to where they don't see grass um i've even seen just these dystopian uh practices that i think will eventually be happening i hope they don't of placing vr headsets on the confinement feedlot cows and showing the pastures on the vr screens which is just horrific um, and then just other things that they'll be trying to do to reduce the stress because they're literally just standing there their whole entire lives being milked. Whenever, I guess, could you just talk about, yeah, how the process is whenever you have your cows? Because you mentioned you milk them twice a day, but then it's a grass-based system. So if you could just, yeah, lay out what that's like for, for the listeners. Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, during the summer is when everyone, the, the happiest, I'll be the first to admit, you know, right now we're, we're on eight inches of snow, probably going to get more now this morning. Um, so in a grass-based system on a dairy farm, we move um, twice a day. So the cows are confined to a small paddock within our paddocks where I call it the S rule. Every single blade of grass, weed, alfalfa, clover, whatever it is, if they're in that paddock, every single piece of grass needs to be eaten on, slept on, shit on or stepped on and if it hasn't then you're grazing too far or you're grazing you're not grazing you're grazing too big and if you come to areas where you lock the cows down for 12 hours and all of a sudden there's nothing but dust or mud then you know you graze too hard the art of grazing is very similar to what the bison would have done um you know back before you know us before we took over in the plains so they would come they would eat the grass as hard as they could, and they would migrate on, and then maybe three months, two months, a month, 30 days later, they would come back and eat it again. So when you practice this um, intense rotational grazing, what I call it, um, or intense rotational grazing, 
for us, we can measure how well we're doing based on our milk production, right? It's really simple. Like for beef guys, it's a little bit harder because you're looking at rate of gain. Well, it takes two years or a year and a half to get a cow or a beef cow to, to wait. For us, I can measure it every single day. Um, in the art of grazing, I am particularly very aggressive. Um, I've been aggressive and it's been very successful for me. Um, and I will do that saying that like, I like to see ground scout, not scout, but I like to see grass eaten hard because I know that there's a certain window in our seasons that that grass is going to just bounce back no matter how happy or how hard it's hit. And that generally will judge how hard you graze or how hard you don't graze. And especially when it comes to the fall, then we back off a lot because we want to leave a lot of residual on the soil to make sure it doesn't get exposed for wintertime. Um, and that art is, is, it's, it's really tough. Like for me, it's like, you know, if you make hay, like, because forage quality is the biggest key on a grass-based system. If you're doing the best possible, you might get four to five crops a year. If it's ideal situation, but most of the time you get three crops, right? So I didn't start farming until I was 19, you know, let's say 20, you know, I only get three times a year to make really high quality hay. You don't get, for your lifetime, you're not going to be a forage expert. I don't care how good you are so crazy to think that you don't get a lot of practice making forage and getting into it which leads to our winter um you know living conditions we have a bedded pack which is extremely great for composting that's like the key to regenerative system is the, having the manure and the straw that breaks down into the highest black gold you can get for composting and then in the winter time we feed baleage which is the art of fermenting bales down which is basically breaks down all the carbohydrates into sugars which allows the cows to eat more, which allows them to produce more milk. Um, and so in the wintertime, they get about an 80% baleage to about, you know, 20% dry hay. Um, dry hay is always a great neutralizer, but people don't realize dairy cows are so picky when it comes to eating. They will pick out what they want and then waste the rest in that. Always, it's crazy to see them. Even in our headlocks, they always still do it. So we run everything through a bale processor, which basically cuts it into smaller pieces depending on the baling and then feeds it out in perfectly straight line. Um, and then that's their winter, you know, winter ration. Plus kelp, they get full-time kelp, full-time trace minerals, um, which is full access 24 hours, seven days a week, they can do it. Um, I like using kelp. Um, kelp is a really good instant fix for a cow. If she ate something off or she did something, she can eat some kelp and will instantly feel better. Or trace minerals, you know, they'll lick on salt and that's the long haul. So. Um, I do also supplement a uh, byproduct, uh, comes out called lathol. Basically it's fermented molasses. Uh, right now, you know, next week we're looking at a high of like minus one. You can't put molasses on feed. It's just not even an option because it won't even come out of the barrel. So I do spray when it hits probably about between zero and minus 10, I will use lathol as an instant sugar. So that will maintain their body conditioning and then whatever they eat will allow them to produce milk. So how old do dairy cows, I guess, what's their, their age range? Cause I know for, for beef, for example, it's much shorter. Mm -hmm. The average dairy cow in normal situations lives to be 20 years old. Um, the average dairy cow in the United States lives to be four. Um, and that has become a lot now more intense because of sex demons. So as soon as a cow comes in, if she gives two female calves to replace her by that fourth year, she's already being replaced. She'll get shipped. That's just how it goes. Uh, I think it was two years ago now, and it was, it was maybe it was last, yeah, two years ago now, we lost our oldest cow at 16. <laughs> so that also does come, there is a little bit more, I, I do want to grasp on that. I do have a system now um, 
with dairy cows and I call it dairy retirement. So I always monitor cows, um, quality of milk. I send it into a company called ag source where I know exactly what's going on in the milk down to everything, including pathogens. And when those cows start to get into the seven, eight, nine lactation, their immune system is built so strong that a cow will have a somatic cell count of, let's say like 500,000. And at her, at the end of her life, she will end up raising babies. So I take the nurse cows are basically called nurse cows. I will take these older cows that produce a lot of good, high quality milk, but maybe not what I want for human consumption. And she'll raise two to three babies at a time or two babies, depending on her, you know, how much she can handle. And then that way it's a give and take with nature and business, right? Like my cows still get to raise their calves and then I still get to have milk for the bulk tank to pay FSA off. And that has always been the best working system for us. Um, yet most people drive by a farm, especially in Wisconsin. I don't know about down in Texas, but you'll see calf hutches. Calf hutches are so common because you take the calf, you take it away right from its mom, you milk the mom, you put colostrum in the calf, and then right away you give her the bare minimum of milk, what she needs to survive. And then at three weeks you introduce grain, which if anyone knows a ruminant animal, it's not supposed to eat grain. This is not, not how they're designed to go. But since you're feeding low amount of milk, you entice them to eat grain, they eat grain, which develops the ruminant quicker, the ruminant develops quicker and she can get bred younger. She can be milking faster in the barn. It's all about numbers. Wow. So that was not, as I was looking at, I'm like, I'm not going to support that. Um, and we've tried a few different things. The first year we started milking for our own, I did nothing. I just sold my, my Jersey full calves. I just sold them to market and I kept the moms. I kept mom and baby together. Um, and didn't do anything. So it was just a free for all. Like, you know, all you come into milking, there'd be calves everywhere. They'd be chomping on you in the parlor. They'd be running around like crazy. And I had a really good success rate. But, um, with that, with the cow is like, that ain't your milk. Homie. Like that's not your milk. So then they don't release oxytocin, which they don't release oxytocin. You'll get any milk from the cow anyway. So we switched that the next year to nurse cows. And that was a really warm balance between business and nature. Wow. So just so I understand this correctly, whenever the, the mother cows, they, they're getting older and you make the decision for them to have the babies, those babies then specifically just have that milk and you're no longer milking them for human consumption. And then you're just continuing on the process to where now those babies will eventually get older and then you milk those babies. Mm-hmm. Yep. That and is awesome. Wow. Yeah. It's, you know, I do in an ideal situation, if, <clears throat> You know, if capitalism wasn't what the system we lived in and we could be paid in rainbows and, I don't know, snow, then, you know, I'd leave the calves and not have to worry about it. But there needs to be a balance. And and I used to use the word sustainable. I don't anymore because sustainable gets tossed around with farmers that aren't sustaining the light bill. They're not sustaining employees and they're not sustaining anything but the animals self. And I was like, dude, you got to make money. Um, if you want to, if you want to farm and you want to have a business, you have to make money. So you, I, you, I stopped using the word sustainable because we weren't sustainable. We were losing money constantly. We were not doing it. And so for me, my balance to give back to nature was nurse cows. And you know, there's issues with it. You know, there's not the perfect, um, you know, there's not a, there's not a perfect world, but that, is very close for us. That's an, that just kind of just blew my mind as you were saying that. That's awesome. There's two last things that I wanted to talk about before uh, ending. The, f- the first one, as you've talked about, that you were working in Wisconsin with the the government and all of that jazz for the last ten years with raw dairy. That's obviously um, 
it's legal in some states and illegal in a lot. And the the laws are, I can only imagine how crazy it is on your end because just reading on my end, it's very complicated and complex and there, yeah, there's just a lot going on. So if you could just talk about more of what that experience has been like and trying to, I'm assuming push for more better laws and more legalization for this. So more people can actually get access to raw milk. I'm just curious to yeah, hear about what that's been like. Yeah. Um, I am, I'm not going to get into, um, the, the past with DATCAP, um, department of Agriculture trade and consumer protection is the one that runs, um, everything from weights of gasoline to weighing trucks to food safety. I mean, they run the state, they are the state agency. Um, we have a very long standing relationship together, um, without getting into too much of the past, uh, we know each other on a first name basis very well. Um, we have actually had an incident in 2020 where the governor got involved. Um, but we're moving past that. Um, currently, I am working. This is the second time we've done this. Um, I'm going to shout out to the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund, the Raw Milk Institute, um, um, uh, myself, uh, a representative that decided to go on a new adventure with me, Elijah Banky. Uh, we are in the midst and uh, officially got our bill number right at the first of the year. But we are looking to have full legalization, including retail, uh, including retail and wholesale, as well as farmers markets and on farm. Um, and that bill was introduced now as the first of the year. Um, but being involved in politics is a crazy world, man. Like, <laughs> I just want to milk cows and hang out with my wife and kids. I never thought I'd be here trying to pioneer a legalization in the dairy state. Um, but it's been interesting. Um, we worked a lot with UW Madison, um, uh, John Lucy. I like to pick on John Lucy, even though he truly doesn't like it. But um, yeah, we're really we're really feeling confident with the new bill. The bill is number seven eight one. It was introduced into the assembly. Um, it was introduced into the agriculture committee, which was not exactly what we wanted because Travis Trannell is the head senator of that, and he milks for Organic Valley. And he is a farmer, so he is not very jazzed on raw milk sales, but we're getting to him. Um, but yeah, right now the bill has a number. So now we're going to push for a Senate hearing. What's going to happen with a Senate hearing will be a public hearing. So we're going to draw as many people there as possible to give us three minute testimony. And the more we can pack, the better. We don't have a date for that yet, but it's coming. Um, and once that gets through, then we have to go through to the governor's office. Um, every Republican that's ran in the state of Wisconsin has been pro raw milk. It's our right. It's our business. It's for small businesses. Every Democrat, the last one that actually made it to office was Doyle. Uh, Doyle was on the, on the, I think the eve of retirement and he just didn't have to sign the bill and we would have legalization. Uh, he was gifted a retirement gift from the dairy board association and signed that bill. Uh, which was crazy to think about, but, um, I have a lot of faith in governor Evers. Governor Evers has, worked closely with Randy Romanski. Randy Romanski is the Secretary of Agriculture, who I believe is a very pro-small farm and pro-keep um, farmers on the ground. So I have a lot more faith in this bill coming up, which will happen this year. So we'll see. Um, and that has been my extent of moving the dairy laws forward and not trying to reminisce on the back. What can just folks do in general is there anything that we could be doing to help with this from any of the states, really? Uh, yeah, because I'm still trying to. Yeah, I guess I'll just leave it at that. What can just folks that might be listening and, and just online, what could they possibly be doing to help you guys? 
Yeah. Um, social media. Fo- I know it sounds crazy. Social media media following. Uh, we have Instagram, Facebook. Um, you can sign up for a newsletter. Um, I am really blessed to have a, a great team that works for me. We actually have what seven full time employees now, including my wife and my kids, um, and they work around the clock helping us do things like this. The social media team, give a shout out to them. They've been really um, helping us push this forward. We made a video for the actual bill uh, for residents in the state of Wisconsin to call their representatives and to call their senators saying you support the sale of raw milk. Most likely you'll just get a voicemail or a chief of staff. That's totally fine just to get as much public pressure into support of raw milk. Um, That's for Wisconsin residents, anyone out not. Um, for any resident that's outside the state of Wisconsin, um, you know, sharing our video for the bill and sharing our social media is it's crazy how how much it works. We ended up getting, I think, almost 90,000 views on the video I made with our representative, Elijah Banky, <laughs> pushing this forward. And same with the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund and the Weston A. Price Foundation. Don't let me, Pete Kennedy has been a godsend for us um, to push that forward. Um, so we, yeah, it, unfortunately, this isn't the first time we've done this. This is actually the second time I've, I've tried this. Um, but I am feeling really confident with this young representative, Elijah. He's a little bit older than me and just gung-ho. Like, he, he this is his mission. And it's yeah. really nice to meet a politician that actually wants to do something right for somebody. You're like, wow. <laughs> um, but it, they do make it confusing for a reason. Politics is very confusing. And now being in it for the last year, you're just, uh, I still don't know. I'll call Elijah what is going on now? He's like, well, it has to do this and that. And so um, just really um, another thing that on a broader term for any farmer that's dealing with legal um, issues, talk to the farm to consumer legal defense fund. I'm going to say it again, reach out to the farm to consumer legal defense fund. It is, it is your lifesaver when it comes to becoming a farmer, but for consumers, um, another thing to really focus on is your local politics. It doesn't matter on the state level, your county, run for your county office, run for your township, run for the small things, your school board. These people have gotten so focused on this presidential election where it will do nothing for us as a community. It focuses on the people that are making the decisions in your county, in your township that are down the road from you. And what really bothers me is that people don't, they're always outward thinking. It's like, this is your community. You need to be able to be focused and running for offices are close by that are matter to you. And I learned this by trying to get a permit to do pizza on the farm. Like, I didn't even know you needed a permit to do something like this. Well, you have to, and you have to go through the county and then you have to go through the township. And the township I live in specifically gave me such a hard time trying to get pizza on the farm started that I got pissed off and ran. And now I'm on the board because that's how <laughs> so involved with it. And granted, now I have a wonderful relationship with them. But, you know, when I started, they're like, who's this big-eared farmer wanted to, you know, and you're like, all right, dude. So uh, as important for consumers and, and for people to understand, local politics mean way more on the, than the national level because they are making the decisions here, right in your own community. Well, that's great. I guess that transitions well to the very last question I had is to folks that may be interested in uh, potentially starting their own micro dairy or, yeah, just after hearing this conversation might want to learn more. Do you have any advice for for those folks? 100%. Um, You can reach out to us whenever you want, but the biggest player in the game is the Raw Milk Institute. That's the rawmilkinstitute.org, I think. Yeah, yeah, that that, Uh, I don't know if you'll talk to Mark McPhee or Sarah. Those are your 
people, um, the Rami certification is by far the most important if you're concerning wanting to sell raw milk. Um, if you're in a state that's legal, of course, try to always follow whatever the, the state laws are, uh, depending on where you're at. Um, but once you have the Rami certification, I mean, every single door in the world will open for you. Um, and I also do that as a food safety issue because it, it really, you could be the best farmer in the world and not realize you're, you're overlooking something. And the Raw Milk Institute program makes you go through those, you know, systems you have and make them so tight that you're like, all right. And, you know, of course, there's always risk in anything you do is risk in driving a car, it's risk in, in doing everything. But minimizing risk through the Raw Milk Institute is by far the most important. Well, thank you, Chaz. I really enjoyed this conversation. And for all the listeners, you can find his social media, uh, Grassway Organics, on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you for joining. I really appreciate it visit www.theregenaissance.co to learn more.